As I mentioned, uh, we're going into uh, the last phase of this sermon series, Metanoia, which is about how do we change? How do we change our hearts, our minds, our lives in the way that God desires us to change? And uh, change is something that uh, can be very difficult for many of us. And um, I, I want us uh, to look at Romans, which in many ways will piggyback off of things that we've been reading already, with things that we've already been talking about, but looking at it from a new lens. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I think I shared this, that Romans 8 in particular, uh, that chapter has been uh, a very, very um, important uh uh, book of the Bible for, or chapter of the Bible, I should say, a very important passage for me. Um, I've been going through some very difficult times uh, over the past couple months, and I'll share more about this in coming weeks. Uh, I shared a little bit in the past, um, and I found myself reading Romans 8 every night for the last two months, and it's been something that's really fed my soul. And as I've been doing that, there are things that, that God has been revealing to me about this passage that I wanted to share with you. Um, what we are going to cover today, uh, it will go into things that we'll talk about in the next few weeks. What we're going to talk about today, I want to warn you, it's a little confusing. And part of the reason why it's confusing is because of the way that we traditionally read some of these things. We're going to talk about very familiar concepts uh, that... We've been talking about, you know, like, like all the time. And, and what I want to try to convince you is that in some ways, what you have heard about words like sin are true, but maybe culturally and because of, um, you know, just certain things that the church has taught us, which aren't completely wrong, but I want to also argue they're not completely right. I, I want to argue that they're not really complete. And that, um, that, you know, even that word sin, um, we think we know what it means, but I want to try to convince you that maybe there's a broader, that there's a different understanding of sin that, that we can come into. And so I, I understand that some of the things we're going to talk about today are little, um, it, it's not difficult, but it's just different than what you have usually heard. And so what we're going to share today, if it's a little confusing, at the end of uh, today, if, if you're not completely 100%, like, oh, I totally get that. That's okay. <laughs> there is some paradox. There is some mystery. And we're going to continue talking about it next week. And so, uh, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry if it's a little confusing. Um, but I want us to understand this because I think there is a lot at stake. You know, we have been talking again about the idea of... If my clicker works here, can we just change the next thing? <laughs> All right, how do we change? Um, it's something that we are chasing, something that we've been talking about. And the idea of change for many of us, the, 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 where change originates for most of us in this world is in yourself, right? Change begins with me. And so I, I want to, uh, I, I, I need us to understand this because if you don't understand this, then uh, you're not going to understand why change is so difficult for us, right? Isn't it difficult for people? You know, I, I know I've mentioned the whole, like, New Year's resolution thing, you know, uh, how uh, everyone wants to change. It is in the human heart and desire to become better people, right? Uh, to do good things, to become loving people. We've been talking so much about love, 
right? And we, we've been talking so much about this idea of change. And maybe for many of you, uh, even coming here every week talking about change, it's not enough to actually change you. Maybe you find yourself slipping into old patterns. There's so many people, you know, and, and, um, the, 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 the problem is for many of us, we think we change by our willpower. We are the ones who decide, you know what? I want to change today. Or I feel like changing today. And all the messages that you hear in this world is that you have the power to change. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to argue this a little bit, but I want to at, f- at first convince you that this is what the culture is telling you. Right, So maybe you have heard that the answer to how you change is your willpower. And so we get these messages, right? You can do it. That's what that, that, that GIF keeps saying over and over. You can do it, right? If you can dream it, you can do it. The Rosie the Riveter thing, right? Yes, we can. We can do it. You know, one of the most famous advertising slogans of all time, I think that, you know, someone, they they did some, like, analysis of the great advertising slogans. And I think in the last, uh, you know, 50 years that this is considered the greatest advertising slogan of all time. Do do you know what, uh, um, uh, uh, whose slogan this is? Nike, okay, Nike did their job. <laughs> you know it. Just do it, right? And this idea, what is all of these things saying? It's saying that the power to change is within you. You can change, right? Like in my mind. So whether or not you agree with this, can you agree that this is what our culture is telling us? Yes? Yeah, right? Like, this is so much of what you can, of what you hear, right? You can do it. You can do it, right? All you gotta do is, is, is set your mind on it, right? If you can dream it, you can do it. You, you just gotta decide, right? And so there is a great problem with this. The flip side, the dark side of this is what happens when you can't do it? What happens when you can't do it? So much judgment, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. I'm horrible. It's so deflating when you aren't able to do something. This is the way, the, where our world lives so much. There's so many people who are dealing with the shadow of failure. You know, and so this idea of you can do it is not just that you can do it, but there is this idea of our identity, of who we are, depends on us being able to do it. Because if you can do it, but you don't do it, what does that say about you? It's not just I failed, but for many people, it becomes I am a failure. Maybe for some of you, you know, you, you, you're trying to get into like, you know, some kind of school. There's a college you've been applying to or a special program you apply to, uh, a graduate school program you apply to. Maybe there's a job you apply to of any of those things, right? And so much of our world tells us you can do it, right? Anyone can do it. Anyone can set their mind to things and do certain things. You know, and, and so this is the message that we hear. And so when you don't get it, it's devastating. Uh, so <laughs> a show that uh, my family likes to watch is called American Idol. 
You guys ever see American Idol? <laughs> now, American Idol is this show where um, it's different than some of these other singing shows because uh, there's, a, there's a show called The Voice, but The Voice, they actually select people to be on that program. So they pick people who are already good singers. Right? People who already have a following. They've been on YouTube. They, you know, they already have like 50,000 followers or whatever. And they invite those already good singers to come on the show. Not American Idol. American Idol is, it's democracy, right? Anyone can show up and try out. Doesn't mean you're going to get in, but anyone can do it. And this is why American Idol was famous for, uh, having really bad auditions, right? Because you would get these really deluded people who are like, I'm an awesome singer, and they would get it, uh, up in front of people, and they're horrible, right? And, and which I think is kind of mean. It's like, why did you put them on the camera? Like, you knew they were going to be bad. You just put them on, on the cameras just so we could laugh at them, right? But what you see in so many people is when they don't make it, they're crushed, right? Oh, I can't be the next American Idol. Oh, I'm horrible. And they're like, my dreams are crushed. And I'm like, maybe you're just not a singer. You know, is it that there's some, like, like, why are we so sad at rejection? There, there seems to be this idea that you yourself are being rejected, right? And, and so sometimes like the judges will be like, you know what? Hey, I'm sure you're an awesome person. I'm sure you have a lot of talents and gifts. Singing isn't one of them, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and just by sheer odds, out of the you know tens of thousands of people who try out for this, only one person can win every year. And by the way, there's been like I, I think like 19 American Idols. I, I think like 16 of them you've never heard of, right? So even the winner doesn't is no guarantee of success, right? Even the winner is no guarantee that you're going to become a famous singer. You know, but most people, they interpret not being able to do something as I am a failure. Does this make sense, brothers and sisters? I want you to understand how tied this concept of feeling like you should be able to do something. So when you don't, when you aren't able to, it feels like a fundamental rejection of who you are. But this is just the reality. Not all of us are going to be American idols, right? You know that, right? Not all of us are going to be doctors. Not all of us are going to be NBA players. I mean, for a while, you know, I, I really like basketball. And there was a time where maybe I had that dream. But I'm five foot five and a half on a good day. I'm not going to be an NBA player. I'm sorry, right? I wish. But the idea, like, if you can dream it, you can do it. It's not true. Not completely, right? Does that make sense? Maybe some people are like, Pastor Steve is such a downer, right? It's just reality though, right? But that is not what the world tells you. The world doesn't tell you that you can do everything, or that, that you can't do everything. The world tells you that if you just want it enough, if you just believe in it enough, if you just believe in yourself, then you can do it. So the inverse is also true. If you don't believe in yourself enough, if you don't get it, well, that means that you're a failure, right? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, so having established all of that then. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, let's look, go into the scripture because what the scripture will teach us about what we are able to do and not able to do, I think is different than what the world tells you. 
And, and uh, I, I think that there is a reality that all of us are under. And it is the reality of flesh and the reality of sin. So verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, uh, for the purposes of today, the way I'm going to talk about law. So law is, of course, the law of God, right? And there are many, many commandments. There's the Ten Commandments, and then there's hundreds of other laws that we are supposed to follow. Um, at least that's what, you know, Judaism was about, right? About following all of these laws. And if you did this, then you were in right relationship with God, right? And so the law is the rules, the commands of God, right? And so um, these commands are spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And this is Paul's great dichotomy. The, great, the, the two great categories that Paul will talk about. Spirit and flesh. Right? Now, uh, most of us, we think of spirit as like, you know, it's almost like something ghostly, something uh, ethereal, something like, like that you can't touch, right? Like, like spiritual stuff is like touchy-feely or it's like, woo, like this kind of stuff, right? And then flesh is, is stuff you can touch, physical stuff. This is not what Paul means, by the way. Flesh and spirit are not physical and not physical. Um, spiritual are the things of God. These are the things that belong to who we truly are created to be in God. And flesh is not. Flesh is the category of yourself apart from God. We'll, we'll talk about this more. But the reason why, it says we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. So we're we saying that I naturally... I'm not completely spiritual. There's this part of me that is flesh, that is not of the things of God, right? And so there's these two categories. And the reason why I am of the flesh is because I am sold under sin. Uh, there are many different ways of translating this, uh, of, of, uh, and so some uh, translations will try to clarify this. And so they'll say, sold into slavery under sin. Um, that I am, I am imprisoned by sin. So the reason why it will say sold into slavery under sin is because of uh, that, that language, you know. Um, are you owned? Right? Does someone own you? Of course not, right? We call that slavery, right? If someone could, could buy you, you know, like Richard, I'm, I'm going to pay 100 bucks. No, Richard, you're, 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 you're too good for that. How about a thousand bucks? I'm going to pay your parents a thousand bucks. Now Richard belongs to me. What can I do with Richard now? Anything I want. <laughs> I own him, right? I own him. The things we own, right? Like, like at some point you could take your phone and you could throw it away, right? You're probably going to treat it well because you, you own it and you treasure it. But if you throw it away, someone could be like, Hey, why'd you throw away that phone? And you'd be like, none of your business is mine. I own it, right? So this idea that you are owned, you are sold under sin. Now you belong to something else. There is something else that can control you. There is something else that owns you. And that language of sin, brothers and sisters, this is what uh, I need us to understand. It is not talking about just doing bad things. Sin is a condition for Paul. So for most of us, this is the way you think about sin. Like... You know, I, I was I was like a little lonely. I was just kind of off. 
And so, so because of that, I, I, I went on the internet, on my computer, and I looked at bad things. That's sin. That's the way you think of sin, right? Or, oh, you know, there's this thing, like I was at this party, and, um, you know, I'm not 21, but, but people were, were you know, they, they, they were drinking and partying. And then I did too. That I, I sinned, right? Yes, that in a way might be sin. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. So I need us to understand that. Yes, there is a whole thing. That is sin, but that's not completely what Paul is talking about here. Okay? So he is talking about something that all of us belong to. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And Paul is not just talking about him. He's talking about all of us. He is talking about a human condition. So sin in the Greek, uh, it's harmartia, and it means missing the mark. It is an archery term. Um, another way to think about sin is wrongness. It, it, it's, it's a state where you are not where you should be. So thinking about the word righteousness, which appears in scripture so much, and I know righteousness has its own set of, uh, uh, you know, people think they know what righteousness means. Uh, it gets a bad rap. So I like to call it rightness better. So if rightness is who you are supposed to be in God, to be like Jesus, to be a whole person, right? Uh, there's that Hebrew concept, shalom. If you are in right relationship, if you are the way you are supposed to be, a whole human being, you're righteous, right? So sin is the opposite of that. It's wrongness, right? It's a human condition more than it is individual action. If you don't believe me, let's take a look. Right? So a lot of Romans is trying to convince you of this. Uh, so we're not going to read all of Romans, but I just want to highlight two passages. But seriously, almost the entire first six chapters of Romans is trying to convince you that everyone is under sin. Right? Under sin. It's a condition, not action. Okay? So uh, let's these two passages. Now the rightness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean? Your rightness, that status of being right, of being whole, it's manifested apart from the law. What is the law, brothers and sisters? The law are those commands, right? It's that idea of of you can do something, and then that makes you right. This is the way most of traditional religion not just Judaism, but to be honest, I think a lot of the church operates this way. You can become a right person if you do right actions. That's the law. Does that make sense? So if you don't do bad things, right? If you don't cheat on your taxes, if you are honest, if you don't kill people, if you don't murder people, right? If you don't do any of these bad things and you instead live a perfect life, then you are righteous. Does that make sense? That's the way most of uh, uh, most traditional religions work. That's the way that Judaism works. But I think oftentimes that's the way Christianity works. Why? How do I know this? Because when you don't do right actions, we feel so guilty. We feel so bad, right? We feel so much shame. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, what's wrong with me? Right? It's very similar to the feeling you have when you fail. 
When, when you don't get that job, when you, when, you, when you don't get into that school, oh, there's something wrong. I'm supposed to be able to do it. You can do it. Yes, you can do it. But I didn't. I didn't measure up. But Paul is saying something very radical. Righteousness is manifested apart from the law now. It has nothing to do with you being able to fulfill commands and rules and regulations. Does that make sense? Um, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, um, and and by the way, that actually doesn't say through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is going to be kind of confusing. It actually says through through the faith of Jesus Christ. Why do we change that? How does righteousness come? You are righteous. Why? Simply because of one reason. Why? Because Jesus was faithful. He was the only one who's able to be faithful. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is why you are in right relationship with God. But you know what we do? We change it. We're like, mm, that, that's just, you know what? That's a little too abstract. I need to do something. So what do I need to do? I need to have faith. And we make faith another law, another rule, another thing you have to measure up to. Oh, I didn't have enough faith. What's wrong with me? I feel bad because I didn't have enough faith. Now, don't get me wrong. You should have faith in Jesus Christ, right? But that's literally not what it says there. That's how you access, um, you know, of course you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. But we make that another thing you have to measure up to. And what Paul is trying to say here is your righteousness does not come from you. Nothing you've done. You didn't do anything. You, you, you didn't even earn it by, oh my gosh, my faith is so good. right? I believe so hard in Jesus this week, and now I'm righteous. right? That's how you can read this passage, unless you understand it actually says it's through the faith of Jesus Christ. For all who believe. Yes, you do have to believe. But the emphasis is not on your belief. It's on Jesus' faithfulness, right? For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everyone. There's not a single person who could do this right. There's not a single person. What is Paul trying to say? He's trying to say everyone sins because sin is a condition. It's not wrong behavior. This is usually how I used to read this. I used to read this as, well, what, what Paul is trying to say is that you're all going to screw up, right? And, and yes, in a way he's saying that, but why are you going to screw up? You're going to screw up because sin is part of your nature, Right? So, brothers and sisters, there's no reason then to beat up on yourself when you sin. When you sin, it's just natural. You know what I mean? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving you permission to sin. And actually, Paul spends a lot of time on trying to emphasize, I'm not trying to give you permission to sin, right? He's not saying sinning is good. But he is saying it's natural. It's a part of who you are. So the idea of somebody getting really down on themselves because they messed up, it doesn't make sense anymore, right? It only makes sense if it were possible for you not to sin. If it were true that you could do it on your own. You know what? If you try really hard not to sin, 
then you could do it. Right? That's the expectation. Don't sin. So when you do sin, we're like, what's wrong with you? You're not supposed to sin. Right? But Paul is saying, it's inevitable. You're going to screw up. You're going to mess up. Right? Just to emphasize the point, another passage, 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men and women because all sinned. And it's going to say that life comes through one man too. The one man that sin came through was Adam. Why Adam? Because he's the first man, right? He's the first human being. It came through Adam, and so it's like a hereditary disease. Everyone inherits sin. There's not a single person. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men and women because all sin. Everybody sins, right? Sin didn't come into the world because you're bad, right? You sin because you're bad. Because you are at your core, we, we, we're off, right? And, and thinking of it not just as badness, I know I just used that word, right? But it's offness. You're not exactly who you're supposed to be. And we know that every time we look at this world, we look at this world and it's not quite right. All right? So, brothers and sisters, I, I, I understand some of this stuff is a little complicated. But does that make sense, right? Sin, it's not just your bad behavior. It's a condition. Okay. All right. So now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is a great conflict. What what Paul is saying is that the law is inherently spiritual. We are inherently not. So if we are of the flesh, of this category that is not spirit, then it makes sense that you will not be able to follow spirit on your own. You can't. You can't. You might want it. There's a part of you that you have been created in the divine image of God, and you can look at the law and say it's good. You know what? Loving people, forgiving your enemies, that's good. I want to do that. Right, But apart from something else, there's something missing that you cannot do it on your own. All you can do is either feel bad that you, you aren't able to do it, right, or just really long to be able to do it. That's all you can do, naturally. You are not able to fulfill the law on your own because you are of flesh. Does that make sense? It's like oil and water. The two don't mix. And because you are of flesh, you cannot do the things of spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So that's what he's talking about, this great conflict. There's a part of us that really wants to do it, but you still can't do it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Um, there's going to be a lot of words here that say law. And, and it's going to be a little confusing. So instead of using the word law, sometimes we will use the word rule. Because I think the word rule will make more sense here. I'll help you to understand this a little bit more. Because most of us, we think about the law as like the Mosaic law, right? All those commandments that are in the Old Testament. But law here will be used often as a rule. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another rule, waging war against the rule of my mind and making me captive to the rule of sin that dwells in my members. Okay? So if you see that, what it's saying is that I might delight in the law of God. I want to do right things in my innermost being, but there are parts of me that are ruled by something else, a law, a compulsion that's telling me, you know what, do this instead, right? So there's a compulsion that is waging war against the law of my mind. So my mind might be trying to to guide me in a certain direction and say, do this, but there's another law that causes me to do something different, right? If any of you have, um, you know, thought to yourself, you know what, I should, I should do my homework right now. I should do my homework right now. You know what, it's good to do my homework. And then what do you do for the next two hours? You're on Facebook, right? You're watching YouTube videos of cats, right? Then you understand this, right? You understand that there's a part of you that might want to do something, but for whatever reason, there's other parts of you that fight against that. Does that make sense? Right? Any of you try to diet, right? And you're like, you know, don't eat the ice cream sundae, you know? Eat the broccoli instead. But before you know it, you're eating the ice cream sundae, right? You know, there's so many ways that we can look at this. But what it's saying is that you are not able to always follow what your mind wants to do. Right? And so it says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So what, what Paul is uh, finding, or the, the person who wrote Romans, who is probably Paul, um, so I, I, I want to read this in the message, because I think this will give you more an idea of what we are trying to say, of, of what all of this is pointing to. It says, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly, uh, parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Brothers and sisters, you will never come to the place where you can change until you come to the end of your rope, as it says here. The end of your rope is the realization that you cannot do good on your own. You're just not that good. You can't change on your own. We're not capable of doing it. This is a lot of the illusion of religion. Uh, there's a song, uh, we're not singing it today, but it's called Simple Gospel. Do you guys know that song? Um, it's like, uh, uh, what is the line about religion? It's like this line of, um, like, like I'm giving up all of my religion, something like that. You know, and, and oftentimes when I, re- when I sing that song, it makes me very uncomfortable because I'm like, wait, we're all singing here in church together that we're giving up our religion, right? What does that mean? I think what they're talking about is not that you're giving up faith, not that you're giving up Christianity, but you're giving up this idea of faith that I can measure up to something by my efforts, by fulfilling laws, by doing the right thing. And then somehow, 
I can change. I can be good by following laws. This is why most of us, when we hear the things that Jesus says, um, for many of us, it doesn't really do anything for us. Uh, it, it doesn't really mean much. Because a lot of us, we're like, okay, that sounds good. But I know I'm not going to be able to do that. When we went over the entire Sermon on the Mount, and you hear about these things that are saying like, you know what, Moses said, you know, don't kill somebody. But I say, if you're even angry with a brother, then, then you've already committed sin. Right? You know, Moses said, don't commit adultery. But I say, Jesus says, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, that you've already, in a way, committed adultery with her. Right? To even have those lustful thoughts. And what many of us, we hear that as, is, oh my gosh, you have to try even harder. You gotta try even harder. You know, just try really, really hard. And with your willpower, you need to change. This is how most of us approach religion, even for Christians. You know, if anything, sometimes Christianity puts even more a guilt trip because it's like, oh, you know what? Jesus bought your life with the blood of Jesus. You are not your own. So now you must try even harder. Oh my gosh, before you were just a sinner, but now you're a Christian. So, oh my gosh, there's even more pressure now. Don't some of you guys feel that? At times, I remember my, my um, one of my uh, professors said that Jesus died to put an end to sin and shame. Sin and shame. And I was like, okay, I get the sin part, kind of, but I still sin. <laughs> so that doesn't seem entirely true. But okay, Jesus in some way forgives my sins. But the shame part, I don't get that at all. My religion, I mean, it's like 90% shame. I'm always feeling bad about things that I don't do. I'm always feeling like, you know what? I should be able to do it. I should be able to do it. I need to try harder. And every time I fail, that's always where I come back to. First of all, I come back to, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I looked at the bad images on the computer, right? Jesus, I'm so sorry that I yelled at that person. Jesus, I'm so sorry I lost my temper. Jesus, I'm so sorry I can't forgive that person. Right, And then what is the next application? I will try harder. What is all of this saying? The trying harder will not get you more life. The trying harder will kill you. Right? You're going to get to the point where you're like Paul, Paul. You're like Paul. He's like, I want to do good, but I can't do good. I try really hard to do good, but I end up failing again and again and again. And he gets to the point where he's like, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of my rope. Who's going to save me? I need someone to save me. This is precisely the reason why you need a Savior. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does help me. He's the one who saves me. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. So the way that Jesus solves this problem is that he ends the whole enterprise of religion. That's what we talk about about putting away that religion, right? Jesus is like, this system shows you 
that you cannot do it. You cannot be good on your own. You can try really, really hard. You can try the hardest. And by the way, there's even a passage. We read this last night for the youth group. Paul says, man, I followed the law flawlessly. And yet, he's still saying, I am still under sin. Do you get It's not your individual bad behavior. It's a condition. Right? That's why Paul can say, I followed the law flawlessly. Right? Like, oh my gosh, I was so good. There's never been anyone as good at following rules as me. And yet, I am under sin. Right? It's not just about bad stuff. It's not just about the, the individual bad behavior. It is that whole enterprise of trying to be good on your own. And Jesus comes and breaks that and says, you have a righteousness. You have a rightness that has been won for you. But there is only one thing now that you have to do. What is that? Let's take a look. It says um, in the next passage, um, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's lots of condemnation when you are in the system of religion, right? When you are trying really hard to be good, to earn your status, right? You're trying so hard to do the right thing on your own by your effort. And oftentimes when you do good, you feel good, right? But when you don't do good, you feel condemned, You feel shame. You feel bad, right? It's just natural. This is the system that we are in. It is a system of condemnation. But no longer being in the system of sin means also no longer being in condemnation. What are you in instead? You're not in condemnation. You're not in sin. You're in, not in flesh, you're in spirit, right? Not in your own efforts, you're in Christ. This is what we are talking about. We're going to have to spend, basically all of next week is going to be trying to explain what it means to be in Christ. But I will tell you what it's not. It's not just being a lone wolf. Just being my own individual Steve. This is what the world is trying to tell you. You know what? There's no one who's going to help you. You got to do this on your own. You got to figure it out on your own, right? You should be able to do it. That's the lie. How many times when you mess up, that isn't that the condemning voice? It's like, Steve, what's wrong with you? You should be better than this. You should be stronger than this. You should be able to resist temptation. Isn't that the voice that you hear? You should be able to do this. And the implication is always in parentheses, on your own. There is no on your own anymore in Christ Jesus. You're now enmeshed. You are united to Christ. There's no more Steve anymore. Not just Steve, but I find my true self in Christ. And when I am in Christ, it's not just my rightness anymore. It's not my behavior, right? You now have a new power. You have a new ability to follow God. You are now living in spirit. Why? Because Jesus is spirit. You're sharing in his life. You don't have to do it on your own 
anymore. That's the good news. Christianity, this whole faith thing, isn't about trying to measure up by your rules, right? Trying to obey the right behavior. It's trying to find yourself in Christ, right? And the way you do that ultimately is you have to lose yourself. You gotta die to yourself. You gotta die to that whole endeavor. Oh, you know what? There's a Steve that is able to do good. Mm, you gotta die to that. There's no more Steve, right? I gotta give up that whole enterprise. I, I gotta just let it down. Do you, do you see this picture? This, this guy who, he just surrenders, right? This, this picture of just Jesus just holding this guy. This guy has, has a hammer and nails in his hand. He's crucifying himself, right? I gotta be the savior of my own life. And Jesus just holds him and ultimately he just slumps down and he's like, Jesus, I'm just gonna find myself in you. I'm just gonna collapse into you. I'm just gonna fall into your arms. Brothers and sisters, I wanna say, I know for some of us, this is so different than what you hear. And for many people, some of you, your brains are already firing, and you're like, yeah, but Pastor Steve, are you saying that I don't do anything? No, no, no. Please hear me. You must find yourself in Christ. And when you find yourself in Christ, then you will be able to live righteously. Right? Only then will you be able to live for Christ. But it will not be out of this, you know, this, this, this idea that I'm going to do it on my own. It's not going to be out of just your willpower. It's not going to be out of this effort to prove something, right? You will, yes, you will hopefully not do the little sins. All those little sins, it's not good for you, right? But the idea of having to rid yourself of those things and then you become righteous is not the way it works. Not anymore. Not in Christ. Right? We find ourselves in Christ. Just give up. Just surrender. Just collapse into the mystery that is Christ and find yourself in Him. It is a great mystery. And it is in many ways the mystery of communion. <laughs> it is unity, right? And so uh, I'm going to ask the ushers to come up, and we're going to go into communion.